You're listening to Comedy Central. Welcome home, I guess. This is this is the studio that you first were in yes. with live human beings. Yes. And now you're back. You you spent some time holed away in your apartment. But recently you guys moved the show back to a live studio audience. It's been it's been fun. It's been different. It's it's interesting that you say welcome home because for me, the home is less the place and the people. Uh, um, our floor manager says that all the time. He says, welcome home. And what I loved about the idea was moving with the home people mm -hmm. as opposed to the space. So what's been fun about coming home isn't necessarily where we physically are, but who we physically with. So the audience has been back. Um, staff is slowly coming back. So, you know, it does, it feels like, but it feels like new home. It's like post-pandemic home. Yeah. You guys are one of the first shows to get back on the air after the pandemic. Right. And you sort of rebooted the format in a completely different way. Talk to me a little bit about how you came up with that concept. Um, what do they say? Necessity is the mother of all invention? Yeah. It, it, was, it was just a situation of realizing that the 21 days that they told us about was gonna be a little bit longer. And um, we were at home. How do you create a show from home? What is that show? How do you stay sane? I think that's really what it was about. You know, and I, I've, I've really been, um, you know, blessed to have people say, thank you for getting us through the pandemic. Thank you for being with us through. But really, I, it's the other way around. I go, thank you for getting me through the pandemic. <laughs> I had things to do. I didn't have to try and bake bread. I didn't have to, <laughs> it was just trying to get through it. And so that was an interesting time to be in with everybody. Cause I was in New York. I didn't get to leave. I didn't want to leave. I didn't even know you could leave, <laughs> should leave. I was just here. You were allowed to leave your apartment if you wanted, but you apparently didn't want yeah, to. Yeah, people were like, we're in Miami, we're in this place. I was like, I'm in New York. Um, and so I think that, that moment of the pandemic was an interesting one because it's not often that we get to talk about a situation that we are intrinsically part of. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same thing for news, I guess. You know, sometimes you're talking about a story, but you're not in the story. Yeah. And yet here we were, all of us, going through the same thing, the same fear, the same not knowing of what's, what's going to happen. And, and so that, that was a journey. And then we had an interim period where we knew we couldn't go back to an audience yet, but we were allowed to be out of an apartment. And <laughs> what is that journey? And, and what is that show? And so I've just looked at it as, as learnings. You know, you go to one place, you learn something new. You go to the next place, you learn something new. But and what is the thing that you learned from that pandemic chapter. I mean, the, the show was really intimate, not just because you were going through the same thing that everybody else was going, mm -hmm. but the, the, the show actually became, you were closer to the audience in yes. a lot of ways, yeah. right? I mean, we felt viscerally with you in that room. And I wonder how that informed when you came back to the big studio audience. Like, what did you want to do differently? apart from like snack a lot. I assumed you did that in your apartment. I think, no, I, that was my goal was to not put on, what did they call them? The pandemic pounds. Everyone <laughs> was doing it. And I, I, I promised myself, I was like, I don't want to come out and then be sad. And it was a whole thing. <laughs> so what, what was the biggest change for me? I think it was probably being in an environment where I didn't have an audience to interact with. And so I had to imagine them. I had to think about who I would wish the audience to be. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it wasn't me responding to the audience, but me thinking about the idea of an audience and, and then even getting the word audience out of my head and thinking more about just the people I like. Who do I laugh with? What do I laugh with them about? Why do we laugh? You know, how do we handle an issue? What do we argue about? What, all of these pieces came together. And so I found myself in a place where I started thinking about these people who I was speaking to. You know, and I, and I think what, what that did for me, which, which was really great, was it helped me remember that the thing we do here 
is, you know, in many ways, the beginning of the conversation that I have with the audience at home. Mm -hmm. You know, th that is where the viewer is. And so when I first started on the show, it, it was an interesting dilemma for me because I've done stand-up, you mm -hmm. know, and then I've done TV shows, but th th there was this world where it's a live audience and who are you really performing to and what is the purpose and what is that? And, and, and I think that created an evolution for me. So when I came back here, the biggest thing I wanted to make sure of is that I didn't forget the people who are still at home. Because those are the people who got me through the pandemic. And the people who come here are those people. It's just they come to see the show live. And so it really became an amalgamation of those two worlds now where I don't think of this as the in-studio audience and that's the home audience. I go, you're all the audience. Some of you just come in person. It feels like you think um, greatly about your responsibilities as a host, as a television figure, but I also wonder how you conceive of your responsibilities as you know, a public figure with the background that you have, right? You, I think a lot of people have come to know you, not just through The Daily Show, but through Born a Crime, your memoir, and the fact that you have firsthand experience with issues concerning race and racism, gun violence, in a way that not only few people in late night do, but few people in American journalism understand those issues in the sort of visceral, personal way that you do. And I guess I wonder, as you think about your role, how do you balance the desire and the need to entertain audiences with the kind of responsibility of being true to those issues and those experiences mm -hmm. and the people affected by those issues. I mean, that's a very delicate line to balance. The first thing that helped me was when I came to the realization that I wasn't trying to entertain the audience. I think that was the biggest shift. I realized that I am not on The Daily Show because I want to entertain the people who are watching it. I want to try and create a space where we come to engage in ideas, mm -hmm. you know? Like you and I will have conversations about everything, you know? It can be something trivial, it can be something serious. We'll laugh, we'll, we'll get serious, we'll, we'll go into it, we'll, we'll argue, whatever it may be. I think that's the best space to be in with other human beings. I love that, you know? And so what I realized was, oh, I'm actually not trying to entertain people. When I do that, then I, I don't give my truest feeling. I, I, I don't delve into a topic the way I really think it should be delved into. I, I, I find myself thinking about performing and entertaining as opposed to communicating as honestly as possible. I laugh, you know? I use laughter to process pain. I use laughter to point out absurdity. I use comedy to process information in the world. So for me, I then realize that that's what I'm trying to do with the audience. Mm -hmm. I would like to get to know the audience and I would like them to get to know me. And in that, we start to build context. And I think every conversation needs context. Without context, no joke makes sense. You know, no issue can be, can be tackled because it's, it's, it's far too complicated. But with context, you start to develop a familiarity. You, just, you, you, you develop a trust. Mm -hmm. And so what I realized was, I'm just being Trevor. I'm trying to be as much Trevor as possible. And I want the audience to understand that this is Trevor. And as I get to know the audience, and as they get to know me, we start to develop more of a bond where we, where we just exist naturally. And so, you, you know, people understand the whys now, mm -hmm. which change what we can talk about, how we can talk about it, and what we can put on the show. And so I'm not thinking about, oh, this is a story involving domestic abuse. How do I entertain the audience? This is a story involving gun violence. How do I, I don't think about that. I think, how do I communicate most honestly with them? Mm -hmm. 
And part of that honesty is that I use comedy to process a multitude of emotions that may not necessarily be haha funny. Yeah, I think that's the human experience too, right? Humor is a way of processing Definitely. the events around us. Sometimes funerals can be funny. My right? grandmother's funeral is one of the funniest experiences I've ever watched in my life. I want to extend my condolences. She sounded like an incredible lady. She's, she was fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. And I know that she plays a big role in kind of, you know, who Trevor Noah is. How did her passing affect you? I mean, how, what do you think you will carry with you from her? I think it, it's exactly that. It's, it's perspective. You know, we, when we went down to South Africa, and we were there for the Global Citizen Festival. And we never planned a thing around my grandmother. You know, I planned to take the show to my childhood home and let them see a bit of the neighborhood that I lived in for many years. And we never planned, I never assume anything of my family. I don't, you know, go, Grand, you're gonna be on TV and no. But she just, you know, wanted to talk to the people. And, I, and, and my friend who was with us, who was directing, said, hey, you, you, you wanna, can we capture this? Mm -hmm. My grandson, I, I don't really mind at all. And so it, it was really interesting to have such a candid conversation with somebody who I've only known love from my entire life, but who I never got into any of those specific conversations with mm -hmm. because I had never come with the attitude of The Daily Show. And here I was talking to my grand, not just about food or about life or about me being a child, but about politics. Yeah. And here was this woman saying to me, yeah, I know the country is struggling now, but you can't tell me it's worse. She's like, were you in apartheid? You know, did you experience this? If, if you didn't, you can't say it's worse. And she gave me perspective. And, and I think that was something she always did for myself, for my family, is she put things into perspective. When you have lived for nine decades, yeah. the perspective that you have on progress, on, you know, on, 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 on I guess, you know, progressive ideas, on, on just improving your life as a person, whatever it may be, the perspective you have is a really interesting one, you know? And, and I think she taught me to not allow the frustration of the moment to overwhelm the idea of progress over time. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I'm eternally grateful because she has left an indelible impression on The Daily Show. She's part of my Daily Show yeah. that you, you can't separate it from that. And so, uh, yeah, it was, you know, grief is, a, is an interesting, emotion because you know everyone said you're sad i was like it's not sad it's 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 more it's multifaceted and yeah. so um and again that's from my gran is that we knew we were saying goodbye over the last few years you know because she's old she's mm -hmm. 95 but you're still never ready for that moment and um and i think that's that's who she was and that's what she left with me always laughing always remembering always appreciating and just trying to remember where you were, where you are, and where you're trying to be. Well, and maybe a little bit hopeful. I mean, yes, or beyond a little bit, yeah. I, one of the things that I think is so notable about this show and all that it does, and we'll get into all that it does in a second, is there's a philanthropic side to this, right? There's not just the commentary itself, but it's the desire and the efforts to make real change, whether that's, you know, donating proceeds from merchandise mm -hmm, sales to mm -hmm. certain organizations, be it the Equal Justice Initiative or 826 National, um, the, you know, the, the companies that you partner with to make the merchandise, lifting up marginalized voices, you know, black women-owned businesses, right. or even issuing a call to your audience to say, hey, we're going to maybe be short on poll workers in the 2020 election. Yeah. You should volunteer. 
Where does that desire come from? Because I think a lot of people think comics and late night show hosts are cynics, right? That they're there to be this kind of satirical take on what's happening in society. But embedded in that philanthropic work seems to be a real optimism that change is possible. I think comics are cynics on the surface and eternal optimists at heart. Because just by the very mere fact that they get out there and say things and then think that people might laugh tells you about a certain optimism that we have to possess as human beings. Uh, just a naked hope. I mean, if we were truly <laughs> cynics, we wouldn't even try. Right. You know, we'd be like, this is never going to work. But we wouldn't even do it. But fundamentally, we do it. I think, you know, it, it's, it's maybe it's a defense mechanism. It's, you know, not allowing ourselves to be too hopeful because the world has hurt us so many times. Sure. And so with the show, it, it was really, again, us experiencing what was happening in the world. It was, it was us seeing how many people needed help. The pandemic was... I mean, it was, it was widespread. It didn't matter who you were, where you were, somebody was feeling something in and around your world and everything collapsed in and on, you know, on top of itself. You had, you know, nonprofit organizations, you had, you know, NGOs, you know, non-governmental organizations. They, they, they just stopped getting help. Mm -hmm. Nobody could get help. And then people who never needed help now needed help. And you had food banks and you had all of this happening. And one thing I've learned, especially about America that I, I, I've, I've always... Um, really found admirable is, you know, America is one of the most charitable countries in the world. Mm -hmm. um, people love giving, but oftentimes people don't know how to give or where to give to, you know? And, and what we realized was we could just be the conduits. We could just take time out of our show to say, here's an issue. You, you, may, you may be, you know, for, against, you may, whatever it may be, but here's how you can connect to these people, you know? And, and it started with disasters, you know, before the pandemic where, you know, Chef Jose Andres would be telling us how he's feeding people, whether it would be in Puerto Rico, or whether mm -hmm. he'd be tra traveling to Haiti or wherever it may be. And we'd see the difference. And on my side, I don't feel like we're sacrificing, we're giving up. We're literally just using a bit of our airtime mm -hmm. to help the audience touch base with the issue. And it makes a difference. And so we decided, why, well, why not do that? You know, why yeah, not Thousands find... of people yeah. showed up to volunteer yeah. to be poll workers. It's, it's amazing. It really, really is amazing. And so it's, it's, um, that's been great to see as a byproduct of, of, of what we do because you can't fix everything all the time, but if you can help in the little way that you can, then why not? I mean, I think you are doing this sort of philanthropic angle is expressed most specifically in, in those donations and the sort of calls to action. But there's also the kind of be the change you want to see in the world aspect to your actual production staff. Like the, you have late night television, journalism in general, the media in general in America tends to be fairly monochromatic and male. And what you have done being one of the few late night hosts of color is change your you've changed your team to be more reflective of the America that we are all in. Tell me a little bit about, you know, when you started this show, what you wanted to do in terms of hiring people of color, women, having a more diverse room when you sat down to craft The Daily Show. Well, to be honest with you, I wanted to continue something that I was asked to be a part of, mm -hmm. you know? I, I will never take for granted the fact that Jon Stewart started changing The Daily Show, you know, before he left. I mean, I was asked to join his show. Right. You know, so was Hassan Minhaj. You know, so was, you know, you, you had all these people who had been brought in. They were asked to join that show. And I, I loved that world. I loved who we were and where we had come from and, and how we'd, we'd communicate. And it seemed like a natural journey to carry on, you know. And, 
And one thing I enjoyed is I've had a team that understands that you can continue growing. It's, it's adding. You know, it's not a zero-sum game. People make it seem like, oh, you've got to kick all of these people out and then you're going to get these people in. But, but it's not that. We've grown over the years as opposed to the show shrinking down and cutting people off. You know, we've found ways to include more people. You know, I, I, I don't often think of it through the lens of good or bad. I think of it more through the lens of knowing or not knowing. Right. You know, in, in this industry, just like in many other industries, oftentimes referrals are how people get a job. When you understand that that's the process, you realize how important it is to look outside of the general referrals because we normally refer who we know. We normally know who we've been allowed to yeah. know. And then America tells you a story that helps you understand how we got to this point. So, you know, I've been really, really lucky that, that my team, you know, now, for instance, my showrunner, Jen Flans, like, she's been one of the people who always, I'd say to her, hey, watch, watch out for my blind spots. I'm not a woman, so just let me know if I'm missing anything. Yeah. We don't have to make it heavy. We don't have to make it something that's, you know, it's like, it's, oh, there's this wall that's holding us back. No, let's, let's speak up. Let's move. Let's talk. You know, if we have members on staff who are part of the LGBTQ community, they can say something. Hey, I don't know if you noticed this. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. Hey, this is some. Yeah, great. Let's do it because it's not supposed to be as heavy as everybody makes it. You're trying to be a team. And I think what a good team does is everybody finds the position that they're good at. And you talk to your teammates. You say, watch out for that. Look out for that gap. Mm -hmm. Watch out for that space. And that's what we've continually tried to do. We've tried to be in a space where we give everybody an opportunity to get to the show. We understand that not everybody had the opportunity to be seen by the show before. Yeah. You know? And so all we're doing is trying to bridge that gap the other way around and find people who just bring value to the show. You know, now you have people from, you know, Uganda, South Africa, you have Nigerians, you have English people, you have Americans from the West Coast, the East Coast, from the South, Where are from your the Burmese? North. You have Where are the Burmese? The Burmese, you're here now, you see? <laughs> you see they asked me about Burmese and then now here you are. And Boom, so <laughs> that's how you make it happen. And yeah, it's like, it's one of those things that only adds just to the flavor of what you're trying to create. Yeah, well, you know? it, I mean, it's hard to imagine the downside of having a staff that is better reflective of the country, but also knows more collectively, yes. right? Like, yes. your blind spots are less, there are fewer of them right. if but you have the, more well, eyeballs looking enough, in different directions. the downside is that it's harder. That's what people don't ever like to talk about. The downside is that it's harder. You mean to find the staff? No, not, not to find the staff. If, you, if you're looking for oh, them, you mean you'll because find they're them. different voices? Yes. There is... Nothing easier than being in a homogenous space or yeah. in a homogenous group. You don't have to worry. You know, when men were in a boardroom, and it's like, we're white men. You don't have to worry about what you say right. because everyone gets it. You this know the, what I mean, Tim. It's the boys club, right? It is harder. You bring in the first woman yeah. and then they go, what can we say? What can't we say? And then for the woman, she has to, does she have to represent all women now? Right. Does she have to speak up for every woman? Can she be, does she have to join the boys? It is harder. Yeah. And I think most things that are worth doing are going to be harder. But if you look at it only through the, the lens of how hard or how easy it is, you don't think of it through the greater lens, which is what can you improve? How can you grow? What can you change? How many perspectives can you add to a show? You know, so if, if you're now telling a story about, you know, Nigerians protesting against their police, oh, wow, having a Nigerian on staff really helps. Having somebody who's connected to that part of the continent really helps. You know, when you're telling a story about whatever it may be, it just, it just helps, it improves, you know, the, the, the complexity with which you can tell a story. And, and so it is harder, and that's the downside, but I think the upside of it is, is, is what you can come away with. I mean, you, speaking of hard, you guys have taken it upon yourselves 
to really screw it up for the rest of us who just want to do one thing at a time. Like, I know people who just want to write or just do television, but here at The Daily Show, everybody does one trillion things. There are podcasts, there are the correspondent segments and yes. spinoffs. There's a, like a, just a host of different pieces of content. You guys are flooding the zone. Social, there's like just, there's the viral clips. I mean, you are blanketing media, both online, digital, you know, broadcast, cable, whatever it is. And making it really hard for the rest of us. That's not really, it's not a complaint. But I guess I wonder how you think of the, the landscape we're in, in terms mm -hmm. of content generation. You guys are a factory. And at the same time, you're also doing a daily TV show. Yes. I, I don't understand how that's physically possible. Neither do I. Have you bent the time-space continuum? And are the, rest of the, uh, are the rest of us expected to do the same, thanks to you, Trevor Noah? I, you know what? I think it is a combination of a few things. One... It's people who are passionate about what they're doing. Yeah. I find oftentimes that helps people manage a workload in a different way because they're not trying to chase a task. They're trying to express their, creati their uh, creativity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so our digital team who are responsible for everything that you see on Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, uh, oh, YouTube, there's so many different ones. You know what I mean? All, All the of platforms. Instagram. Yes. They, they love it. They, they're on the platform, you know? Like, I remember when TikTok first started and they came to me and they're like, oh, there's a new thing, TikTok. And I was like, oh boy. I literally <laughs> sounded like a 50-year-old man. I was like, TikTok, what is that? What, I don't know. And now look at it. They were passionate. And so it was easy for them to get into that space early. And, and yeah, so, but you're making it just sound like people kind of like, oh, I want to grow tomato plants. Go for it. You're, you're, you're establishing a certain culture inside the building yeah, that well, is making people yes. feel free enough to be creative and then execute on that, those creative ideas. You want, you want to have fun. Here's the thing. I mean, maybe you experienced this in the pandemic. I know I did. I, I realized during the pandemic, you want to be in a world where you're enjoying yourself. Yeah. Everyone talks about life-work balance, but I live here as well. This is, my life doesn't stop when I come here. This is not an episode of Severance. You know, <laughs> I, I work here and I, I, I have to enjoy that. So I want to be with people who I enjoy being around. I want to have conversations that are fun. I, I, I don't want to feel like it's a laborious exercise that I'm, you know, counting down the hours until I get to leave the place. No, I understand this is what I'm doing for my, you know, my living, but I'm also living. Yeah. And, and, and so the people that we, we've managed to get, we're so lucky. It was just in every team, in every department, is people who understand what we're trying to do, why we're trying to do it, and then we just try to think of new ways to keep on doing it. So we understand that not everyone watches the show on linear television. I know some people who watch the show on, they DVR it, they yeah. DVR the whole week, and then they binge me. I didn't know that I'm bingeable. That's not a thing that I- Highly bingeable. It's <laughs> not a thing I ever considered. So you have some people binging, you know, you, you have some people who only watch the clips. You have some people who are the biggest fans of us, and they go, I love your show on Facebook. I'm like, oh, well, I'll take it. Um, and instead of fighting that, we've learned to embrace it. We've yeah. learned to go find the people where they are, meet them where they are, yeah. take the daily show to them, as opposed to trying to force people to do a thing that they're not doing. I think platforms are always going to change. Content is the one thing that will remain ubiquitous. And so as we keep on growing that, 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 that footprint, 
we get the opportunity to grow and that's where all these other opportunities come in to grow your staff, diversify your staff, look at new ways to present yourselves and I think it becomes a win-win in the end. Well, but you also have these correspondents who have gone out and built effectively franchises. Yes. Jordan Klepper is one that comes to mind because he's, you know, some of his work has met with great success oh, and yes, lots of definitely. eyeballs, right? And here you have Jordan. I mean, there are no late night shows that have that same organizational structure, right? You have correspondents out in the field bringing the viewers to Trump rallies, which they almost certainly would rather not attend. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's that's breaking the mold. It's giving a lot of um, independence to people who are part of your world. And it's been successful, but there's also an inherent risk in that, right? And I guess I just wonder, how did you think about doing that when you, you know, you, when you guys began sort of conceiving that idea? Well, the riskiest part of anyone going to a Trump rally is, you know, Trump pointing at them and saying, there's the media, the fake news media. You've yes. been to some yes. of those rallies. That moment gets a little hairy sometimes. Um, other than that, Jordan has told me stories of moments where they're at a rally and sometimes people are like, hey, you're the guy who talks to us. Let's talk. <laughs> sometimes they go, you're the guy who talks to us. Yeah. You need to leave. But luckily, you know, he's managed to play it safe. He's managed to talk to people. He's managed to give us a certain level of insight, funny enough, yes. into what people are saying in their world, which I've always find... I've always found fascinating because in America, so many people live in one world, the bubbles as they call it, and then they're shocked when things happen. Yes. I can't believe yeah. this happened. How did these people vote like this? I think or that was they... everyone in the year 2016, Trevor. But I'm like, but these people were there. It's yeah. just nobody was talking to them. Nobody was bringing it into your world. I'm not saying you can change them. I'm not saying you can convince them, but at least you can be aware of them to understand what you're dealing with, you know? And so... Once you understand that you're occupying the same space as people that you may or may not agree with, you realize that that space is occupied. You are your people. You're in it. And what the correspondents have done, you know, Jordan's a great example, is he's taken us into a world that many people were unfamiliar with and have now become a lot more aware of as an idea and as a concept and as an energy. And so all the correspondents have, have done that in different ways. And what I've enjoyed is seeing each correspondent find their own thing. What is the way they want to tell a story? How do they want to tell it? Why do they want to tell it? What makes it funny? What makes it them? And what it then does for the show is it means it's no longer just this, you know, you know, monolithic blob of Trevorness. It's me and it's all the people I find funny. You know, I, I laugh at half the things Roy's saying. I laugh at half the things Dulce is saying. I laugh at the things Jordan is saying. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm also a viewer. And, and so what that's allowed us to do is build this, you know, almost cinematic universe of The Daily Show where you, you don't just see it through one lens because it shouldn't be seen through one lens. Some monolithic blob of Trevorness. <laughs> um, you do a thing on your show that nobody else does, which is you have new authors on your program. You have people whose voices are n almost never given the platform of something like The Daily Show. You have activists. You have names that are not household names. You, of course, also have big names as well. But talk to me a little bit about why you chose to do that and sort of what that means for the show. Because of the conversations. Yeah. You know, I, I love having an actor on the show. I love having a performer on the show, a musician, whoever. I love all of that. However, I also think it's great to have an author on the show, someone who's shaping people's minds, telling stories. They may have written a, a, you know, a, a fiction novel that's, that's changing how young people see themselves in the world. What informs them? How do they do it? I remember the first time we had an artist on, you know, like a painter. 
And we, when I asked him to come on, he was like, but why? I said, because art shapes how we see the world. You know, till this day, people are shaping, you know, how we see the world through art. I, w- I want to talk to you. I want to understand how you decide what to shape or how you shape it. Um, you, you know, you, you, you want to talk to activists themselves, not just to give people a platform, but also to challenge people. Mm-hmm. I, I like challenging people. I like, you know, discussing ideas. I love it when ideas clash while people still respect each other. I enjoy that. And so I want to talk to somebody and understand their points of view, be able to disagree with them, come away with a deeper understanding of what they believe in, and have the audience, you know, be in the position where they get to choose what they want to believe or or how they see the topic now, either from a different perspective or just from a slightly more informed perspective. And so that's why I try and have as, as many different people on the show who just come from different, it's, it's not just about entertainment because the world is not just about entertainment. You know, there are many things that are informing entertainment, ironically. So I want to talk to those people. I want to see what their lives are about. I want to see why we're doing what we're doing in the world by talking to the people who are actually doing it. I have two more questions for you and then we'll be giving you an Emmy. Um, the first is you guys are on every night, pretty much. Uh, and there's a sort of responsibility to cover the big news stories of the day, but you also cover things that other people aren't necessarily covering, or you cover those big stories in a way that nobody predicted. A totally unique Trevor angle. How do you guys decide on what you're going to cover each night? What's that process like? The journey has evolved over time. When I first started The Daily Show, um, I thought of it as I'm trying to do The Daily Show. Over time, I came to realize no, this, this place is, is, is a vehicle, and so my job is to steer that vehicle in a certain direction. And the way I do that is by having informed conversations with the people I'm lucky enough to work with. And what those conversations illuminate is what's oftentimes happening in the world. So I've come to learn that th- 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 there's an interesting thing that's happened in America where People created this, and I, I don't know if it was the politicians purposefully, I, I don't know if it was the news. They created this, this, this illusion that like, politics is for, is for the party, right? the beltway. Do you know what's happening? The filibuster, do you know what's happening? Oh yes, yes, well, well yeah, the chair, Senate chairman. Do you understand the committee or you don't know the committee? If you don't know the committee, you can't participate. Yeah. And then the people's topics are, you know, tabloid and what, oh, what's happening with Kanye and Kim? Kim. Oh yeah, well, yeah, that's a tabloid topic. And I realized a lot of the time it isn't that. First of all, politics, is literally of the people. I mean, it's taken from the Greek word. It's supposed to be what the people are discussing. It affects you, you know? And if you don't understand what the people are saying, that's because they're doing that on purpose. What I'm always trying to do is have the conversation in a way that we all can understand. I'm not afraid to say, oh, I didn't get that. Can you, can you say it to me again? Can you explain that to me? And oftentimes you'll be surprised at how many times the politicians go like, well, I, actually, I don't really, I just, I just say it. And then there's the topic that the people are talking about. You know, some topics may seem on the surface frivolous, but they touch on an issue that maybe everyone is going through. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they touch on ideas and, and complicated conversations that we wish to have, but oftentimes don't have the tools to have. And, and what I've allowed myself and The Daily Show to do is be a space where we engage in the real conversations we're having. You know, I, 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 I think it is important to be, in, to be in a place and to be a place where we can say, you're not just one thing. You know, you have opinions on politics, you have opinions on news, you have opinions on geopolitics, on the economy, on whatever it may be. 
you don't think you do, but you do. You know, do you own a home or do you rent a home? Well, then you have an opinion on the economy, mm -hmm. whether you think you do or not. You know, do you have an opinion on laws that are being written in Congress? Well, you do, whether you think you do or don't. And so what, I, what I've tried to do as much as possible is put the show in a position where we have the conversations in the most accessible way because they're affecting people indiscriminately. You know, just because you don't understand an issue or you don't care about it doesn't mean it won't affect you. And so what The Daily Show with Trevor Noah is trying to do is not shy away from stories that may on the surface seem frivolous when in fact those could be the entryways to some of the best conversations that you can have. In, in many ways, it's, I think it's what like a lot of, you know, lawyers or, or you know, consultants slash whoever they are, they, 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 they do for the Supreme Court. Yeah. They take something really small and that goes on to define what the country is talking about. It's one person who won't bake a cake. What does that have to do with anything? Yeah. Well, it's a larger conversation about who should bake a cake or shouldn't bake a cake or who should they be allowed to not bake a cake for. Right. Or, you see? But it's, I mean, it's just a cake. And yet, all of these cake issues are the issues that are defining how America is shaped as a whole. I do think a lot of the Daily Show audience thinks of this as their own Supreme Court. <laughs> um, you have hosted the White House Correspondents' Dinner. You have hosted the Grammys twice. You have been interviewed at 60 Minutes. You've been doing this show for a little while now, but this sort of feels like a moment when your voice is resonating, is wanted in a way that it hasn't ever, I mean, it's, it's, you've reached a different stage in your career, it feels like. I think the Chinese Zodiac this year is not the year of the pig, but the year of Trevor Noah winning Emmy. <laughs> um, but I mean, I guess I wonder, um, why do you think the media in particular, and, and I would say American culture writ more largely, is responding to you so, is so keen to hear from you in this, in this moment as opposed to others? Wow. This is a difficult question to answer because I, I would first have to accept your premise. Well, it's not, um, I mean, they keep asking you to do these big deal, big ticket things. And it's not just because no one else would do them, right? I mean, I happily would have hosted the Grammys <laughs> twice. Nobody asked. Nobody asked me to host the White House Correspondence Center, and so far, 60 Minutes has not booked my interview. It's because you're doing five other shows. Okay, anyway, so the point is... You, you know what? You you're know what in I, demand. Why? Um, I hope it's because people know that I work hard. I hope it's because people appreciate what I bring to any project that I step into. Um, I, I think it's also a culmination, mm -hmm. you know? Um, it's interesting that you said you've been at this show for a while now. And as I walk through the hallways, we, we've, we've hung up pictures from our time at the show. And I realized when walking through the hallways, it's like, it's not a show, it's been many shows. Mm -hmm. You know, for about two years, I hosted the daily show with Trevor Noah of Jon Stewart, you know? And, and I only realized that in hindsight. You know, I, and, then, and then you look at the next years and it's like, okay, this is the daily show with Trevor Noah about Trump you know, because that's what it really was, processing this madman who Americans had never seen, and yet for an African, I found so familiar, <laughs> you know? And, and then the next era became doing The Daily Show, but from home. What, what, what even is The Daily Show now? Yeah. 
Now it is truly just you. You've jumped out of bed and you, you know, you showered, you got ready, you're in your hoodie. It's a very intimate space to be in with an audience now. Um, then you in the post-ish pandemic phase and w what is that thing? That's another show. And now I feel like we are, we are, we are beginning a journey of a completely new show once again. And so this show is a culmination of all the other shows that have followed it. This show is a, is a culmination of every experience I've had. It's, it's, it's everything we've done, you know, whether it's us going on the road to places like Florida or, you know, going out to Cleveland for conventions or, you know, or, or creating parts of the show that travel in unique and interesting ways, you know, creating a Donald J. Trump Twitter library <laughs> yeah. that, that takes people into the mind of, of, of the tweets, you know? It's, it's, <laughs> it's been a wonderful way to, you know, to explore what we do, why we do it, and how we do it. And so, yeah, what's, what's invigorating is the fact that it feels like it's a new one yet again. And I think many people are feeling this in life. You know, people have switched jobs. People mm -hmm. have switched cities that they live in. People have switched who they wish to be. And, um, and so for myself, you know, this, this, this feels like that. It feels like we, we left something behind and we're moving towards something else and, and we're taking the parts that we, we feel we need to keep. This feels like, it feels like the best version yet. It feels like certainly the one that wins an Emmy. <laughs> I would hope so. From, from Do you your, hear us? From your lips to the voters' ears. I think for anybody who has watched you from the beginning of this journey, right, when you were Trevor Who, to now when you're hosting these huge, big ticket events, you're becoming, dare I say it, the voice of a certain generation. It's wow. a big deal. And it's exhilarating to watch someone do it with the grace and the consideration and the intelligence that you have. So I'm not one to offer accolades. I genuinely like shy away from them, but really congratulations, my friend. I'm really happy for you. And I hope this year is your best one yet. Thank you so much. Thank you. That would be a fun journey. Trevor Who to <laughs> Trevor Who won the Emmy. <laughs> Trevor Who guy, he did it. <laughs> one can hope. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central. And stream full episodes anytime on Paramount+. Plus. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.